Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy curriculum and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry. We engage in conversation with colleagues and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today, our guest is Dr. Michelle Herridge, postdoctoral fellow in STEM education with the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. Dr. Herridge has earned her PhD at the University of Arizona in chemistry with a minor in teaching and teacher education. She has worked in discipline-based education research since 2013 and has a BS in chemistry and a BS in sociology from Clemson University and an MS in chemistry from Missouri State University. Her research explores assessment and instructional practices, primarily in chemistry education and professional development for graduate teaching assistants and new faculty. She has taught in a variety of courses, including Baylor Interdisciplinary Core's Natural World Sequence, a science and integration course for pre-service teachers, and a team-taught course on feminism. We are delighted to have Dr. Herridge on the show to discuss recent developments in discipline-based education research, what excites STEM college instructors, and what it's like to teach outside your area of expertise. All right, Michelle Herridge, thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. So you are our current postdoctoral fellow in STEM education. I think a lot of listeners, especially those who come from STEM fields, will have a pretty good idea of what a postdoc, postdoctoral fellow is in their fields. Someone continuing research, working hard in the lab, but a postdoctoral fellow in STEM education is something different. So what do you do here? What have been the major projects that have kept you busy now for two years? Yeah, um, so I think that there's a lot of overlap in terms of continuing research and getting to know a little bit more about what the future might hold and what um, is interesting to me. So the thing I think I'm most proud of in the past two years has been the STEM Education Journal Club, which is an org- a group of us that meet from all of the different STEM disciplines every other week. We read a journal article and then we talk about it and there's plenty of kvetching about what's going on in our classrooms, how our students are doing, um, but also really thinking about what's the evidence and what's the research that's out there um, for us to try to implement in our classrooms. Um, I've also been part of a grant writing projects and helping out with the particularly the biology labs, revamping classes to engage in evidence-based practices, doing lots and lots and lots of observations um, and seeing how STEM professors, uh, but all professors at Baylor or some of the professors across disciplines are um, teaching their classes, how we might support them in engaging in those evidence-based practices and bringing them to students, um, as well as doing some teaching in some new courses and teaching cross-disciplinarily. Um, which has been a ton of fun. Um, But really, I am here as a resource to uh, provide professional development, um, engage in sets, support the ATL how I can, um, and bring that STEM background to this group. So we've worked together on uh, teaching observations across 
campus. So I'm wondering what your your take is on what you see are differences in disciplines about how people teach, what are some default modes in teaching, because that's one area in your work where you've been stretched a little bit outside of the STEM bubble. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I think that thinking about the observations that we've done, the difference largely seems to be in the type of information that students are asked to know um, or to learn. So um, in my mind, a lot of STEM has, you know, sometimes there's this list of facts or this list of ideas that we then put into practice and engage in application um, and really a coherent model that is transformed for our students of here is how this cycle work or here's how this reaction happens in chemistry. Um, whereas in some of the other disciplines, it is uh, seems to be, you know, you still start out with a list of facts or this list of information, some reading, um, but then introducing how do you leverage that into argumentation or how do you form opinions based off of this. Um, so the real difference to me, um, while you can use active learning in both of them and you can use evidence-based practices no matter what your field is, the difference really comes to me between uh, the content versus the structure of how it's delivered and thinking about are we focusing on how these pieces go together or how do you engage in the building of it itself? Yeah. I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, and I'm going to I'm going to come back to what you may have learned about teaching a humanities course as well, speaking of getting getting experience outside of the STEM bubble. But when you were mentioning the Journal Club, I've heard you talk about this. I haven't attended any of these, but just the the robust discussion that you're having in these in these reading groups where you just take a take a piece of recent literature in in the scholarship of teaching and learning or discipline-based uh, education and and talk about it and and apply it and see what comes out of that. So I'm interested, especially from those journal clubs, what you're hearing from faculty that excites or motivates them in their teaching. Yeah, um, I think the thing that's most exciting is, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one with this problem and they figured out how to fix it. Um, and so I, th I think the most exciting part is not just the, you know, there's really great research, there's a lot of interesting research out there, but this idea of getting excited because there is validation of our frustration as instructors and as professors and recognizing that we are not alone in the problems or struggles that we face um, and that there are many, many different ways to approach solutions to those uh, leveraging your students, leveraging the people in your department or in your field finding ways to address those frustrations or hiccups in, oh, this didn't go quite the way that I planned it. How do I get back on track? And so um, what's exciting about that is that no one feels like an island. Yeah. Um, and I think that that sharing of resources, um, we have, I believe it's seven different disciplines that are represented in our four different sections. Um, and so having that crosstalk of, oh, I'm in geology and you're in biology, but we're having the same issue helps us find things that are uh, Baylor solutions, but are also solutions, uh, you know, maybe from chemistry, they've tried something and it can be applicable in other spaces. And that seems to be the most exciting thing for a lot of the people participating in that group. 
Yeah, it can be, I don't know if, if you've experienced this working in a center for teaching and learning as you have, but it can be um, important to remember and kind of surprising that faculty often don't talk to each other about their teaching because this is what we do every day. We go out and talk to faculty about their teaching. Uh, but it's so helpful to be reminded from these faculty that they they go to their class, they shut the door, they don't get a chance to talk about it oftentimes in department meetings or things like that. And so any development that's happening, they have to seek it out usually or it happens because of spaces that that have been created outside of their of their departments. So let's talk about some of those problems. What are the challenges that that faculty have, especially coming in in the STEM fields in their teaching? I think that a lot of the challenges have to do with um, the expectations for pacing um, and the idea of how we learned in those classes. Um, STEM teaching is definitely slow to change. Uh, active learning papers started coming out in the 90s and here we are in 2020, uh, 2023s. And thinking about, you know, this paper came out almost 30 years ago why aren't we doing this? Why is it such a small group of, of uh, people who are engaging in these new practices? It's because it's hard. It takes a lot of time to think of um, how are you going to implement these changes? It's a lot of effort to not just take, um, you know, a textbook and read from it. And so I think the challenges in STEM are the same challenges as any other discipline um, in insofar as it takes creativity. It takes time. We are overloaded with the number of classes that we're teaching, the number of students in each one of those classes. Um, STEM courses can easily be 100, 200, 300 classes. And so when you have such a high volume of students, it can be that much more difficult. And um, if something doesn't go right, it feels so much more stressful. Yeah. And so I think the challenges are around finding supports, finding things that are going to work on the first try, knowing that that's an unrealistic expectation right. can scare people away from it. Yeah, I've heard more than one faculty member saying, oh, I tried flipping my class. And I think they usually mean like I did it one semester and it was really hard or it didn't go exactly as I expected. And so it was easier to just default back to what I was doing before. Absolutely. Yeah. So that the mention of, of the pace of change in our teaching brings to mind something that I think about a lot, which is the tension between the, the slow pace of, of change in college teaching and conversely, the speed of development in the scholarship of teaching and learning. And so like any other field, it, when, when, when people are taking a scholarly approach to studying teaching and learning or discipline-based uh, education, things are going to move and, and develop. And what was the, the hot new thing at last year's conference is not, not talked about anymore. Um, you know, I think about this with like flipped classes again. I was at a conference two or three years ago where the one of the plenary speakers made a point to say, I didn't see any sessions at this conference on flipped learning. And four or five years ago, it, there was like 40% of the session. And yet there's faculty who have never tried it, don't really understand it, who may have heard this or that about it. And it, 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 there's this tension where it's like some of these really good things kind of um, never get a chance to land with faculty because the, the field of the scholarship is moving on. 
Any thoughts about that? That that was just kind of out of the blue, though, as you were talking. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I think um, we were talking today earlier in the STEM Ed Journal Club about this idea of um, try, got to try it now. Um, how do you know what's going to work? The continuation of, you know, we are as instructors are in fact learning new things. Um, and this idea of having to move so quickly through, well, what if next year it doesn't work? And what if next year, you know, what if this group of students loves it and the next group of students hates it? How do you moderate your teaching in that? And when do you, you know, tell your students this thing didn't work, uh, we're going to try it again, or uh, we're just not ever going to try anything new. And I think that there's a hesitation in teaching because we are impacting the future lives of our students we think you know it is so critical that I never make a mistake when I'm standing in front of this class because what if I say something wrong and that's the only thing they remember and um, I think there's a lot of validity to thinking about how we're impacting our students futures I also think that modeling mistakes and finding new information and teaching ourselves and engaging as whole humans is so vitally important that I am more likely to try something new than to try something that uh, is is boring or old or hasn't has been done a thousand times before Um, And I think it's really important to recognize that that's a very precarious place for us as instructors um, to be okay with knowing that we aren't going to be perfect and doing the best that we can and making decisions carefully and thoughtfully about what it is that we can retain and what it is that we can change to increase our engagement, decrease our own workload, make it so that our students are learning and engaging in a way that is meaningful to them um, and not just, this is the way that I was taught, therefore this is the way that I will teach. Yeah. I'd like to do more study on this and perhaps even some research on it if there's if there's room uh, in the literature for it. But oftentimes we will get asked if a certain thing works and will point to the literature, but then a follow-up question might be, well, does it work when you do it? As if there's a little bit of distrust about the scholarship of, of teaching and learning. And I've started to rely on the answer of, well, like like all anything that's scientific, we're going to rely on the consensus in the literature and we're going to try it. But on a personal, more subjective level, when you do the things in your teaching like you're talking about, trying new things, being willing to, to uh, model failure for, and mistakes for students, at least in my experience, the, 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 the job of teaching becomes just much more enjoyable, much more rewarding when you think about it in those terms. And so I, I don't know, maybe there's a study out there that shows like, yes, you can love teaching 15 more percent, <laughs> I don't know, something ridiculous like that. If you if you just, you know, just let go a little bit, try new things and enjoy that process. So uh, do you have a similar? Uh... I will definitely co-sign that okay. study with you. Uh, I would <laughs> yeah. love to do that study. It, it's such an interesting idea of um, 
you know, there's so many articles that talk about the art of teaching. Yeah. And then you con you contrast this with this idea of, well, there's scholarship of teaching and learning and there's all of these discipline based education researchers. And where is the line between it's an art versus an, a science? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that you and I are both very firmly in the camp of it's there's there's scientific attributes for sure. Um, and I think, you know, when I reflect on my favorite instructors, some of them were my instructors, some of them I had the pleasure of working with and collaborating with, some of them I've simply observed, um, some of them do just have the magic mojo and, and thinking about what's common among them is they're bringing um, a joy and a passion yeah. to what they're doing and they are okay with recognizing that learning takes time and that we as instructors are learners yeah and it's a matter of to me it's a matter of faculty flourishing too because even if you can look at your week and go well I'm, if i if i keep doing the same things that i'm doing in my teaching and don't experiment then i don't have to do that extra prep and that'll save me time and then i can do more research or, or whatever the case may be but i think about the the scholarship of like robert boyce who found that it's the instructors who don't resent teaching and don't resent the time that tend to try new things and to be a little less zealous about their image in front of students willing to you know make mistakes and things like that and those are the ones who are successful across the board in their in their research in their teaching in their collegiality so there's a whole kind of package mentality i think that that centers for teaching and learning and faculty development workers could could um, tap into with that so let's talk about your teaching here at Baylor. You have taught a just a uh, an incomprehensible mix of courses, and I love that because when people ask me what I teach, I have to say, okay, well, what what semester are we talking about here now? Because I I've taught in three different uh, departments here, and and so have you. So what have you taught here? You want to just list it for us? Yeah, and then give some reflections on it? Uh, so I have taught for four semesters here at Baylor. Um, I have taught Natural World One, uh, which is a, um, it's in the Honors College, part of the interdisciplinary core team taught uh, qu questions about what makes us human. And then uh, Natural World Two, both of those are uh, for non-science majors. And then I have taught in the School of Education an integrated science course for elementary education majors. And this semester, I am teaching a senior level course in uh, the interdisciplinary course, uh, and that's on the philosophy of feminism. So anybody who's taught in the Baylor interdisciplinary core can attest to this. Uh, teaching outside of your area of expertise because it's kind of by design mm -hmm. that faculty get that um, they get selected to teach these courses because they do bring some expertise but also a deep willingness to approach the, que the, the questions in a more generalist way and helping students how to think through things even if you're not the one who's uh, you know certified expert uh, in it so what have you learned about teaching that kind of course so I will say that uh, teaching outside of a chemistry department is very different in many ways and is very similar in a lot of ways. Um, I think that teaching non-science majors shifts the focus in a substantial way from 
know these ideas or these facts or this information to scientific literacy more generally. Yeah. Um, I think that there are absolutely skills that I find teaching BIC students that um, I had more trouble getting to when I was teaching in chemistry. Um, one of the things that comes to mind is writing. Um, the difference in the types of writing, the difference in the assignments, um, grading, you know, six to eight page papers versus lab reports is a very different experience. Yeah. And so the the construction of those papers and thinking about thinking about thinking really right. um, is is such a, a novel experience for me in terms of what are the questions that I can ask my students? Can I ask them to approach this from their own disciplinary background? Can I tap into, and you know, if it's a history major, can I say, here's how the science plays into the history and here's the reciprocity that exists? Because those, those connections do exist. And you know, for a long time, I was in chemistry departments. I taught exclusively in chemistry departments for seven years. And being forced to think outside of, you know, I'm going to spray you with a fire hose of chemistry all of the time and really reaching and for the comprehensive nature of what we do has been so wonderful and so pleasurable um, and really forced me to think about why it is that I love what I do. So I avoided stem mostly successfully in my college uh career in my high school career too um i can't believe they kept let, giving me degrees um and i was talking recently with a, a math professor about this very thing you know i took a a real generic kind of uh it was called like a problem solving course as a as my math elective when i was in uh, in college and i felt like that course really did help me think about what is math and what is math for in in like a very important kind of philosophical way that on one hand it's sort of like it's like rocks for jocks you know like that kind of thing where it's like well you know you're not going to cut it in in the the high the high octane math courses but on the other hand i think there's a lot of students who pass through layers and layers of those highly technical STEM courses and and then at the end of it still don't really understand what is this for? Why why does humanity do this like on a deep level? So I don't know if there's something there like maybe everyone should take those kinds of Dr. Wright's going to love me for saying this. Every student needs to take a philosophy class. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's a that's a <laughs> So why do you say that? I So uh, I took a philosophy class as one of my gen ed requirements in undergrad. Um, and of course, um, you know, working in that philosophy of feminism course now, I think philosophy is something that underpins all of our education. You know, I have met with a number of faculty who are, you know, or pre-faculty grad students, postdocs who are trying to write teaching philosophies. Mm-hmm. and And really at the core of it, any kind of philosophy to me is is thinking about why it is that we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. And I think that that's so incredibly valuable because stopping to think about the purpose of learning this information or constructing things in a certain way or even going to college in the first place 
is so taken for granted by so many like yeah i knew that i was going to college and so i went to college and i remember asking my parents can i just major in general education and they're like no you have to pick something uh which is why i think i'm drawn so much to things like the interdisciplinary core or these things outside of my field but taking the time to to take a step back and say we study history because it gives us a precursor to what can come in the future. We study chemistry because it explains things like fire. And I don't know about you, but I think fire is pretty cool. Like We should know something about it. <laughs> we like the the at the at the end of the day, education is about asking questions, seeking mm-hmm. information to help us explain things. Yeah. And that's true of history, that's true of, you know, English, that's true of bi- biology, chemistry, physics, math. Um and, you know, you made this comment of of not being able to make it through some of the the upper level math courses i think that's one of the challenges for stem is that stem has this reputation of it's going to be difficult you're going to struggle and i don't think that it has to be that way but i think that taking a time to say okay i'm teaching introductory chemistry why is it that i you know was interested in this subject how do i showcase my passion or my interest for it how do i you know my students are not many me's um my students are not going to take the same career path that i am we don't need you know a hundred percent of a 300 student introductory chemistry class to be a phd chemist like that's not but what is it that I need my students to get out of this experience to go into the world and be productive to be able to answer the next questions. We don't know what questions are going to be asked in 10 years from now. We don't know what questions are going to be asked in five years from now. And so engaging in the thought process of what are the tools necessary? How do I prepare for those? How do I help students get excited about something, almost anything, I think is the critical piece there. And especially in sciences, helping students to make that mind shift about what science is. And it's not, as you were saying earlier, you know, just all of these facts that you that you commit to memory and then plug into some kind of skill or, or, or technique. You know, because because I'm a historian and and I, I, I took these kinds of classes like philosophy of science when I was an undergrad, this is the way I've always thought about science. And I'll tell my students in a, in a history class going through like the scientific revolution. And I'll say something like the driver of, of science, what science is at its core, this is coming from this person who's not a science, you have to sort of maybe translate it. Science at its core is uncertainty and skepticism. It's trying to, to prove what that last thing, that perhaps that last thing that we thought was right might not be right. Like that's the history of science is always good. And students just stare blankly at me like, no, history is about, or science is about certainty. Science is about knowing exactly the way the world is. I'm like, no, that's not exactly, just, you know, it's not really the way that it has ever worked. Yeah. What we think is settled now will not be settled at some point. I think, I think that we are moving towards, I don't, I don't disagree with you. We could have a really philosophical debate on this. I'm <laughs> yes, <sure. laughs> we could. I think that the core of science is asking how well do we know that. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily that it will change or that it is unknowable at its heart, but that the questions of, okay, 
if we take this model to be true, what are the flaws in this model and how do we make sense? And is there a better model that can answer more questions? Right. That's a good way to put it. Um, And so I, I think that attacking it from that position of you know how do, how do you ask questions is relevant no matter what discipline you're in yep yep exactly so let's talk about this feminism course you came mm-hmm. you came into the podcast studio here fresh off of uh, uh co-teaching this this course this afternoon so how have you found this experience to be uh, you're teaching something that is I don't know if it's completely outside of your area of comfort, but it's certainly if you looked at your CV, you want, one could surmise that it's that it's outside your area of expertise. Um, I believe that I told a student the other day that the last time that I deeply annotated readings this closely was when I was in uh, AP linguistics and okay. AP literature. Um, so definitely been a long time. It was very nice to dust off some of those tools of critical reading and annotation, thinking about having, um, papers in conversation with one another, which is a very human humanities type of thing to say. Um, put these two people together in a room that lived 150 years apart and have a conversation. Yes. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I have really enjoyed um, bringing in, you know, as a woman in science, I my undergrad, master's, and PhD are all in chemistry. Being um, even in physical chemistry, which is even more male dominated than other subdisciplines of chemistry, um, has really been complementary to how do we view women uh, historically and how has feminist thought shifted throughout time. Um, and so I think that going into this class, I was very nervous. I, we have a class and a final left, and I'm still nervous, um, but I've learned a lot. And I think that it has helped me to find ways to communicate effectively. So as an education researcher, we do a lot of statistics. We have a lot of social science background. And reading papers in this class where we are debating things like um, gender and sex and biologically uh, derived labels, how does that intersect with the rhetoric and how do we talk about those concepts and how do we engage in meaningful discourse about differences in opinion when there's, you know, here is the set of science and the facts that can be measured versus here's how we talk about that. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it's definitely been out of my wheelhouse. Um, but I, I think that as I have alluded to previously, it's it's meaningful in a we need to be having conversations within our discipline and without our like between our disciplines. Um, so in the STEM and Journal Club, we bring a lot of different STEM disciplines together. Um, in the this feminism class, I am working with a lot of students who are not science majors um, about things that aren't science, but we are still tying in scientific thoughts and ideals in some of those conversations. What have you uh, developed in terms of your own teaching techniques in this feminism course that you might be able to in some way use in in more traditional STEM courses? 
Yeah, so uh, this is a Socratic style class. So it's lots of discussion. We read things outside of class and then come in and talk about them. Um, I have I've been a big fan of active learning for a long time now, um, and I think that student driven activities and student driven conversation is a cornerstone. I think that it is more difficult to do in STEM because sometimes uh, it's not just read this paper and respond to it in an intellectual or emotional way. Um, but I think that some of the things that I will draw from it is to hold space for both small group and large group discussion. Um, a lot of active learning in STEMs um, is focused on the small group activity, but I really like the the whole class conversation that we've been having. Um, I think that you know, this is a capstone course for the big students. And so there are lots of lots of seniors. Um, but I really appreciate the relationship that has been explored through some of our papers and activities between what have we read in class? How does this apply to your personal life? So um, we I designed an activity this semester for gendered stereotypes activity and said sometime during the semester do a masculine activity and do a feminine activity before you go tell me what you expect if you're anxious about it what's concerning how you think it's going to go and then after the fact tell me how it went basically and um, my students did amazing they had such great ideas they really poured their heart and souls into this class but also trying new things um, and I would love to bring that into a chemistry class of hey when you go bake that thing stop and think about the chemistry or when you're cooking or when you light off fireworks, what's happening. So I think that this um, transference from here's what we're learning in class, how does it apply to other areas of your life is really the biggest takeaway that I would hope to take into other classrooms. That's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about the research that you're doing. What's, what's on the docket right now? What are you working on? Yeah, so I'm working on quite a few different things. Um, I, I think the first thing is that observation uh, project that you and I are working on um, to think about whether or not um, when an instructor asks for an observation, what types of things are useful to recommend yeah. um, and what, what recommendations are taken up and what recommendations are sort of ignored. Um, I think this really fascinating in terms of our work here with ATL and doing those observations of what are the most accessible things to change? What yeah. like, sure, everyone can go in, like anyone can tell you to overhaul your entire course and you need to, but how do you, you know, make it more straightforward without changing someone's entire teaching philosophy or right. teaching style? Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to talking more about that and sharing the results of that work. Um, I'm also working with an incredible grad fellow this semester. Um, she and I are looking at graduate teaching assistants and seeing what kind of supports or training they would like. Um, we often, you know, in, in my case, I was thrown into a lab to teach and said, here's the lab manual. Yep. Here's the schedule. We have staff meeting once a week. <laughs> good luck mm -hmm. um and took me a while to to find my footing and figure out what i was doing and so looking at the experiences of graduate students in a lot of different disciplines and saying what are the things that you remember what do you wish was there um 
which I think can be really helpful in designing our programming, but also as feedback to different departments on your grad students might not be telling you exactly how they're feeling. Um, But there's a lot of stress when you teach for the first time. And there's a lot of stress in figuring out who you are as an instructor, especially when you're a grad student and you're still taking classes and figuring things out yourself. Mm Other than that, I am looking at assessment projects. I love assessment. That's thing that interests me, uh, I guess. Uh, And so looking at how we design rubrics and what expectations are set forth in how people rate rubrics. Um, We often think of rubrics as, you know, we have all of these people grading or maybe you're grading individually, but you're using some external metric to keep yourself aligned and on track and consistent between students. And I don't know if rubrics are always what they uh, are anticipated to be. I don't know if they always uh, act the way that we expect them to act. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you for all of your work here at Baylor and at the ATL, all of your collaborations with with me, with our colleagues at the ATL, with faculty across campus, and thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Our thanks again to Dr. Michelle Herridge for joining the show today. If you would like to learn more about Robert Boyce's work on faculty flourishing, see the show notes on this episode at baylor.edu slash ATL slash podcast. Click on season three. And remember, the best way to support this show is to subscribe with whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. That's our show. Join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.